I suppose would be um, an apt description of what looks what Rome looks like after it burns. And six days later, when the fire is finally extinguished, ten of its fourteen districts are gone. They're burned up. People, livestock, homes, businesses, gone. Well, Nero couldn't blame Trump, so he blames the Christians. He focuses attention on the Christians. They did it. You know those atheists that don't believe in the gods. You know those immoral people who practice cannibalism by eating flesh and drinking blood. They're the culprits that started the fire. Well, this blame will lead to arrest, the rounding up, the turning in of a family member of another family member, and Christians will be rounded up and they will be arrested and they will be dispatched in a number of awful ways. Some of them will be dipped in pitch tar, put up on poles and set on fire to light the uh, Nero's gardens, his private gardens. Some of them will be taken to the Colosseum and fed to lions and killed in other various ways. Some of them will be sawn up in skins of animals and they'll tie them up, sew them up in these skins and then turn the dogs loose on them and they will be basically eaten alive. In your mind now, move ahead a year. It's Say it's July 16th, but now it's in the year of our Lord, 65. One year later. And you're gathered with other Christians in the catacombs down in the tombs among the bones and skeletons of the dead. And you've gathered there to worship. And above you is, above ground is persecution and it's an awful situation for a Christian. But as you gather with other Christians in the catacombs that, that Lord's Day for worship, a man stands up and he stands up with a different brand new book. It's called a gospel. There's never been a book called a gospel. And he starts reading from the gospel of Mark because that's the first gospel as we looked at last Lord's Day. It's something wonderful that you've never heard before and as he reads from the gospel of mark you you are reminded that jesus too suffered suffered awfully and he was persecuted you you'll be reminded too that jesus's reputation that it was ruined it was trash he was lied against You'll be reminded too that Jesus was driven into the wilderness and He was among beasts, animals in the wilderness. And you'll also be reminded that Jesus too was arrested. He was arrested by the Roman officials. He was beaten. He was mocked. And He was crucified. And you'll hear again what has been repeated 
by oral apostolic tradition, you will hear repeated again that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior and He has come to save and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Now, with that in our minds, look at Mark chapter 1 and imagine you're there as you hear these words read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My blessed Son, My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. May God be pleased to bless His Word and may His people say, Amen. Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, I want to focus on the word beginning. But in order to do that, I want to move ahead just a little bit in the passage. It's the beginning of the Gospel. And that word is the word euangelion. And that's repeated often in the New Testament and also the Septuagint. In the Greco-Roman world, however, this was a very common word. Gospel, good news, euangelion. It was, it was a common word. And it was used for a number of different purposes. It was used uh, in, an in an inscription celebrating the birth of the Roman Emperor Augustus. And that, that inscription read, Good news, euangelia. Good news to the world. Even the concept of good news goes back and it was really used in a military form. We find this in the Old Testament where you got good news from the battlefield and runners would go and they would be sometimes called the, the gospel bearers, the gospel messengers, and they would bear the message, the gospel, 
about the victory on the battlefield. Such would be the case in 1 Samuel 31, verse 9, where the Philistines have fought the Israelites. They have triumphed over them. And Saul, the king of Israel, has been killed. His three sons have also been killed. And they discover their bodies the next day. And we read, quote, they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, the Evangelia, the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And so this word was not an unfamiliar word, but Mark is employing it in a very peculiar way. In the common usage of the word of that day, the word was always in the plural form. This is a good tiding among many good tidings. It's, it's just one note of several notes. It's always used in the plural form. Interestingly, as you come to the New Testament, you, all, you always find the word is used in the singular. Not the plural. It's in the singular term. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Singular focused. In the Gospel of Mark, the euangelion, the Gospel, is more than good news of an event. It's the good news about a person. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. That's the focal point. Now there are three names that Mark employs here in verse 1 to describe one person. He uses the name Jesus. That's a personal name. And it means He will certainly save. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call His name Jesus. Why? What does it mean? For He shall save His people from their sins. Jesus is a personal name. I have a personal name, Thomas. His personal name was Jesus, and it meant he shall, he will certainly, he shall certainly save. Then he has a title, and Christ is the official title. I have a title, not like Christ, of course, but I have a title. I'm called Pastor. That's a title. Well, Jesus is a personal name. Christ is a title. It's his official title, and it means Messiah, anointed. William Hendrickson comments on this and writes, it indicates that uh, uh, Christ, it indicates that its bearer was by the Holy Spirit anointed, set apart, commissioned, and qualified as prophet, priest, and king in order to carry out the task of saving His people to the glory of God triune. And then we have the term Son of God. In some manuscripts, this particular term is omitted. And of course the passage I read in my Bible includes it. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But whether or not that is omitted or included in your particular text, it really is inconsequential because one thing Mark makes ex extremely clear is the, de the, the deity, the divinity, the, the Godheadness of Jesus Christ as you go through Mark. Let me give you uh, just an example 
of, of what I speak. Now, by the way, Mark repeatedly uses the term Son of God throughout the Gospel. This isn't the only place you find it. It's, it's repeated several times in the Gospel. But, but in the Gospel of Mark, he, he ascribes to Jesus and he points out that Jesus, through His person and activity, really is the Son of God. As an example, look at Mark chapter 2. And here you, you read about the, the healing of the paralytic by Jesus. And Jesus says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, we read on in the passage and we read that there's some scribes sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they got that right. But what they got wrong was they missed the fact that the man standing there who said to the paralytic, Son, thy sins be forgiven, is himself God incarnate, Emmanuel. But they're upset because they know that's not something a man can do. That requires God. And this is the kind of thing you'll find in Mark time and again. So the deity of Christ, the fact He's divine, whether or not in verse 1, if that phrase is omitted, really is not so paramount in my mind because Mark makes it clear that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Son of God. Ferguson writes, Mark begins his gospel by telling us that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's not good advice about how to live, but it's good news about a person. Now, the point I would make here is the centrality of a Christ-centered gospel. It is of utmost importance, both individually and corporately, when we speak about and think about the gospel. What was the message of John the Baptist, by the way? Well, we can say he said the kingdom is at hand, repent. Yes, that's part of his message. But that's really kind of the prelude. His message is there is one mightier than me who is coming after me. There is one who is worthier than me who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to loose the latchets of his sandals. There is one holier than me that's coming after me. Yes, I'm baptizing you with water, but this Holy One of God will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Yes, and not only that, there is one coming after me who is the Chosen One, the Messiah, the Christ, for John will point at Him one day as He's walking by and say, Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. And so he knows this. That's his message. John's message is Christ. The bold one, the holy one, the worthy one, the chosen one, the mighty one. When Jude begins his epistle, a little small epistle of Jude, one chapter long. When Jude begins his epistle, he says, I really wanted to write to you about some matters of the common salvation we enjoy. I can imagine that Jude had some pleasant things he wanted to write. He said, I really wanted to write this to you and discuss this with you. Bring this to your remembrance. But I can't 
I can't because Jude says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now why did Jude find it necessary to change what he really wanted to write about and say, but I wanted to do this, but I must do this. I must write to you to contend for the faith. Why did he have to do that? Well, the obvious answer is the faith's under attack. The gospel is under attack. The singularity, the focus of Jesus Christ is under attack. The gospel was under assault. Has that assault stopped? Do you imagine in your mind that that assault is ever going to stop on this world? No. And often that assault comes by enemies. Sworn enemies. And we talked about some of that today in Bible study when we looked at Islam. But sometimes, and even though it was the case in Jude, that assault doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside, from well-meaning, often well-meaning people who get misdirected. And the shift is no longer Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the, the focus becomes, well, you must be this or you must do that. You must be this thing or that thing. You must belong to this political party. You must school your children at home. You must do whatever it may be. Those things may be fine, but they're not the Gospel. The Gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's singular. Singular. And the focus is on Christ. And when that focus slips, individually or in the church, we're in trouble. We're no longer focusing upon what God Himself sent His Son about. I want to go on now. I want to go to this word beginning. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, the Gospel of Mark begins rather abruptly. There's no genealogy. There's no virgin birth. There's no angel course. There's no shepherds. There's no wise men celebrating the birth of, of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark begins in a way that's really reminiscent of Genesis and John in the beginning. He starts the beginning. And as we read Genesis 1 and we read John 1 and I think even here Mark 1, when we read this, it reminds us of God's continual activity in history, in time and space, in the lives of people and nations. And this reality had to be an encouragement to those first century believers when they're hearing Mark for the first time. You mean God hasn't abandoned us even though we're being burned as torches and being fed to lions and wrapped in uh, clothes of animals and fed to dogs? You mean God hasn't forgotten us? You mean God is still sovereign? You mean God still loves us? Yes. Yes. So you mean I'm dying of cancer? I have an awful disease? My, 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 my finances have gone down the tubes? You, you, I can't find a job? You, you mean God loves me? Still loves me? Yes. 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 God is active in history. And that's one of the things you will see in Mark again and again. But what does Mark mean the beginning of the Gospel? That's really where, as I think of this, started down the road. What does he mean, the beginning of the gospel? I mean, surely Mark knows. He actually he's going to quote Isaiah next. 
And it's really from three different prophecies, but that we'll get there. But, but he quotes Isaiah next and he goes, Surely Mark knows the gospel was preached by the prophets. The prophets predate Mark. In Acts 10, verse 43, which sermon of Peter, many think that Mark is patterned after. Peter will close his, uh, toward the close of his sermon, will say, To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear record. Ah, all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Malachi, all the prophets bear record here. And then Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two men uh, after His resurrection, He says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now He placed Moses as a prophet. Remember that. Because we're going to go back to that in a little while. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the thing concerning Himself. Jesus said, it's all, the whole canon of the Old Testament focuses on Christ. Yeah, but even before the prophets, the Gospel was preached. What's Mark mean the beginning of the Gospel? Because I, I know the Gospel was preached even before Isaiah or Jeremiah or or any of the other prophets, because I read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. Oh, wait. God declared the Gospel to Abraham. And He's before the prophets. He's before Moses. Yeah, but I know it even goes beyond that. It's even earlier than that. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 8. And they heard this would be Adam and Eve. <clears throat> and I suppose... Well, this is Adam and Eve. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. I was terrified. I was petrified. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said to Adam, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Well, of course God knows what Adam has done. God doesn't need a telegram from Adam to figure out that he's eaten of the forbidden fruit. As you read this, it's, it's interesting that God pursues Adam and Eve. They've sinned. They have fallen. And God pursues the fallen sinner. And isn't that always the way of salvation? 
I don't know where people find Jesus, but it's the other way around. He came to seek and save. And God pursued them. He found them. And not only is what God said to them judgment, it is judgment. He pronounces judgment. But He also declares grace. Not so with the serpent. He declares to the serpent judgment and He condemns him without remedy. There is no remedy for him. Ah, but for Adam and Eve there is. Which takes us to Genesis 3.15. Which has the big fancy title of what? Which means it's proto-evangelum. Which means, what's that word? Evangelum. Gospel. Proto's what? First. And so we understand that Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel declaration. And this is way before Mark wrote in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here God will declare the gospel. And He declares a final triumph over the serpent by the seed of the woman. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. He shall bruise your head, crush your head if you please, the offspring of the woman, speaking to the serpent, the offspring of the woman will bruise your head. He will crush your head. He will strike a vital, deathly blow against you. And he goes on to say, you shall bruise his heel. Christ is wounded. The seed of the woman is wounded. But not mortally. Not eternally. We read of this victory of the seed of the woman in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by having victory, by being over them, by triumphing over them. And then we learn also in the New Testament about believers taking part in this victory in the seat of the woman, in our head, the second, the last Adam, that we also join in this victory, this triumph that God has declared to Adam and Eve. For we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, um, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I give you authority. Speaking to his, uh, his disciples, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, is he talking about physical snakes and physical scorpions? Well, somebody may say, well, Paul reached into fire and he was bit by a viper. So, yeah, he's talking. I don't think so because look at what he says. Over all the power of the enemy. Who is the enemy? Satan. The devil. That old dragon. Beelzebub. The one that lies 
is full of deceit and lies to believers. And of course, James tells us resist the devil. And what? But we can go back earlier. It doesn't start at the garden. We back it on in. And this is where your mind begins to go, whoa. But we back it on in. That Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, is there anybody there to hear it? No. But it's there in the triune God. 1 Peter 1.20 says, He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but He was made manifest in these last times. And then Revelation 13.8, Everyone whose name has not been written, when? Before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb, who was slain. And sometimes folks get the idea that you know God's got a pencil and an eraser and He's jotting down your name sort of like a Christmas list and those who do good get things and those who are naughty, watch out now. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is that the Son of God became flesh and He took upon Himself the sins of His people and He died on the cross. He redeemed us and that His righteousness is imputed to, to me, to us and my sinfulness, my rottenness my unworthiness is imputed to Him and He nails it to the cross. And He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world and a name written from that same time. So, what does Mark mean in the beginning, or excuse me, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Mark I know that you know that what you're writing is not, not the initial first time ever the gospel's been declared. I understand that what Mark is speaking about is a transition in redemptive history. And I base that, and by the way, I read so many scholars on this, my head was spinning around. Uh, what does he mean? And so there's a lot of different thoughts by a lot of different worthy people, okay? But to me, the, the subordinate conjunction in verse 2, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, makes the tie for me and helps me understand what Mark is what he means here. That John the Baptist's ministry marks the inauguration of a new era, of a new kingdom, of a new king. This is what Mark is addressing. He is linking the, the ministry of John the Baptist with the inauguration of the gospel, the kingdom of God. The old covenant, the culture of Israel is until the time of John and John declares the kingdom is near. 
It's near in this person. Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees and others reject that message. They will not have that. Oh, but others do. And they press into the kingdom, as Jesus would say. They press into the kingdom against all opposition, against family who will deny them and reject them, against persecution around them, against the the, the Satan warring against them. They will press into the kingdom because they realize they found a pearl of great price, which is worth more than it all. And in spite of the hate, rejection, denials, persecution, the troubles, whatever it be, they will press in. They believe. They follow. Now Mark, I believe, when he says at the beginning, he is is saying that this in the Gospel of Mark, you're not going to find the totality and the entirety of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning. But he is recording the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the bringing of the gospel. Now I want to illustrate this. Maybe this will help clear up what I'm trying to say to you. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And let's see if we can shed some light on it here. Maybe. Deuteronomy 3. Verse 23. This is Moses. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, You have only begun to show Your servant Your greatness and Your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth He can can do such works and mighty acts of Yours? Please, Let me go over and see the good land beyond Jordan and the good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me on this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah. Lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. Now I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Consider who's making this prayer. Who is, who's offering, who's praying before God and beseeching Him? Moses. Well, turn to the end of Deuteronomy for just a moment. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Let's read about this man. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Nobody else comes up to Moses' level. Whom the Lord knew face to face. None like Him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent Him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all His servants and to all His land, and for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. There has not been a prophet since 
like Moses. Moses was known by God in a very familiar, close way, as it were, face to face. And Moses was the instrument God used in such a powerful way. Who's heard of the the parting of the Red Sea? Of walking across on dry land? Who's heard of bread from heaven and water from a rock? Who's heard and seen these things? Moses. And then we even go back earlier to to the ten plagues. And we think about all the plagues that God brought on Egypt through Moses since he holds his staff. There has not been a prophet since like this man. That's who's praying this prayer. I want you to notice then when he's praying this prayer. Look again at 34 verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord... Let me back up to verse 4. I could back on up. Let's back to verse 4 at least. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. We read that in chapter 3, didn't we? So we we got the sandwich. The The book ends here. Moses praying at the beginning, and we find out at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses is praying this great prayer. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Who prays this prayer? Moses. When does he pray this prayer? At the end of a career that there has never been a match like unto it. Never. At the end of a 120 year life, a man who has seen and heard and walked with God in a very singular way, that's when he prays this prayer. And what does he say? I want to go over into the land. Lord, let me get into the land. Why? I've been out in this wilderness 40 years and I am whipped. I've had to put up with these stiff-necked people for all these years, Lord, and I think that's my just dessert. Let me in. No. Why does he pray this? He says, you have just begun to show your servant your greatness. I'm just beginning to see, to grasp, to understand the greatness and the glory of God that I have served all my adult life, ever since God called him on the backside of the wilderness. I am just beginning to see. You have begun to show me. Wow. Moses knew that what he had experienced was but an eyedropper in a vast ocean of the greatness and goodness of God. I'm just beginning to see this. Now let's flesh this out. 
history is separated by, and it's founded, I believe, it's separated and founded, and it's understood. If you really want to understand it, I think you understand it on two great events and their advents. These events are advents. And I'm speaking about the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. His first advent and His second advent. This is the way history is divided and understood. In the first advent of Jesus, the beginning of the gospel, the inauguration of the kingdom of God is begun. Ah, but when will it see its fullness, its realization, its completeness, its consummation? When will that be realized? The second advent. The first advent starts it. The second advent brings it to its glorious eternal existence. The Bible is replete, it's it's full of messianic promises and prophecies concerning these two advents of Jesus Christ. First advent and second advent. In the first advent, the Messiah would save His people from their sins. He will deliver them from the kingdom of darkness. He'll usher them into the kingdom of God. Ah, but in the second advent, the Messiah will not only deliver His people from their enemies, but He will utterly and completely and finally destroy every enemy of His and of His people. Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer. We're not talking about a half kingdom. We're talking about the the completion, the realization of the kingdom begun and the first first advent of Christ. But he says, no longer, this is Revelation 22, verse 3, will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with Him forever and ever. Now the prophets, and I think John the Baptist included, did not always distinguish between these two advents. They often collapsed these two great momentous events. They collapsed them together. And I think John did this. For he that's in the kingdom of God is greater than John. For one thing, but John will be arrested. We'll get to this later, but John will be arrested. He'll be in prison because of his faithfulness, declared to Herod, it's not right for you to have that woman. He stands up, and the end of it, he gets he loses his head. And while he's waiting to be beheaded, he sends runners to Jesus asking a question: Are you really the Messiah? Or should I be looking for another? He is the man that pointed at him. He is the man who baptized him. And yet this man is saying, are you really him? His life is shaken, I think, to its core. 
Why? Well, I think part of the reason, and I don't mean, please, I love all, I don't mean wrong, but I think part of the reason is the eschatology is wrong. He is collapsing two things into one thing, and he can't distinguish, he doesn't distinguish between first advent and second advent. And he was expecting something different when Christ came. And when it didn't happen, are you really him? Or is there another one? Because I'm still in prison. And Rome still rules. And Christians are being persecuted. And your disciples are being beheaded. Lord, it can't be. Oh, but it was. It was. It was. But he had collapsed two things. And we do that. Because it's hard reading sometimes to understand because you're looking at something like this in theological language, $10 words, this is called prophetic foreshortening. But you're looking at something in this, this way. And it's hard sometimes to even see two things. And then when you see the two things, it's hard to distinguish space and gap between the two things. Have you ever been to the Rockies? And you get near the mountains. You can see it in the, in the Appalachians. I think you can see it more in the Rockies. You get near the mountains and you see these huge gigantic glorious peaks sticking up and they look like they're just like you know like this and you drive and you drive and you drive and you get to one and all of a sudden you realize oh that mountain I thought was right here is nowhere near right here it's way over there and that's the way it is often in scripture there's two events and if I see them like this oh okay, oh yeah but if I see them like that it's got I don't really get that. It's hard to distinguish that. Well, I got off. In the first advent, the new kingdom begins. It is accomplished by Jesus Christ. But in the second advent, the kingdom and all of its inhabitants reach their zenith, which is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Remember Moses. You have just begun to show your servant your greatness, your power. And your glory. What's the point? Well, what is inaugurated and experienced in the first advent is totally and eternally realized at the first advent. Concerning the first advent, it is proclaimed. Therefore God, Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that being Jesus Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what should happen? Every knee should bow. And that's true now. And we call upon people who have not repented, and we declare unto them, repent and believe on Jesus Christ. Bow the knee. He's king. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is Advent 1. What about Advent 2? Romans chapter 14, verses 10, 11, and 12. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account 
himself to God. You see the distinction? At the first advent, Jesus confronts the arrogant, the wicked, the hypocrite. Jesus heals the sick. He comforts the downcast. He raises the dead who die again. Lazarus isn't sitting here today. He's dead. His body's returned to dust. But he was raised. Ah, but the second advent. Jesus will completely and without remedy destroy every enemy. 1 Corinthians says, Then the end, then comes the end when the, He delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Not only will Jesus cast out demons, as we read in Mark at the beginning of the Gospel, but He will consign them to hell forever. Not only will He reprimand, warn, and invite the ungodly, He will judge them and condemn them forever. Not only will He heal diseases of His people, comfort the distressed, but He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, it's been about 2,000 years, thereabout, since Mark wrote down the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And because it's been so long of a period of time, we tend to think, well, we're not living in the beginning. Oh, but we are. We're living in between two momentous world eternity-shaping events. Christ came in the flesh, and this same Jesus that you saw go into heaven shall come again. But He's coming differently. He's coming with final, ultimate, complete victory. Lord, I have just begun to see. Oh, I've eaten at your table. I've drank. I've drank from the fountain. You have nurtured my soul. You have fed me with manna, Lord. On my journey in this life, you've been gracious to me. You've saved me. You've, you've, you've turned me around. You've worked in my life in times and places I didn't even realize. Ah, oh, second advent just begun to see because there is the ultimate the completion the finality of what we find beginning in Mark so we live between two advents and like those believers in the day of Mark we press into the kingdom and sometimes it means you have to give up everything around you but you press into the kingdom. We live with a mixture of joy and sorrow, the already but not yet. I have sorrow and I have joy. But one day in Christ I'll have no sorrow, but my joy will be taken to the heights I can't even begin to define. So we await the second advent and the unfettered, unrestrained, ultimate joy 
and victory. So yes, it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Lord, you have just begun to show your servants your greatness. He that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray together. Holy Father, for your word we are most grateful. And we do love to tell the story. We know it's been told time and time again. But it is sweeter with the telling. It is sweeter with the more hearing of it. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in the minds and hearts and consciences of all that are gathered here this day. And that they could realize the greatness of the salvation that is ours, the greatness of the kingdom of God. Lord, that you would encourage us along our journey amidst the problems and trials and perhaps tribulation. So, Father, we thank you for this, this word, for the gospel of Mark, and as he has penned the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And may we go in its understanding and its strength. I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. If you would please stand for our benediction. Taken from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.